0: This
1: is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look
0: inside your genes.
1: It's the hottest new biotechnology technique to hit the headlines since, well, since ever. CRISPR is a precision set of genome editing tools, enabling scientists to cut and paste together DNA in any organism exactly how they want. And the implications for human health
2: and even humanity are huge. What you end up with is, in effect, this sequence that you've added, precisely inserted in the targeted position in the genome. Plus, linking genetics to lifestyle
1: and our gene of the month is black and white and very cute. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for February 2016 with me, Dr Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. The speed at which CRISPR has moved from the pages of dry academic journals to the headlines of newspapers, not to mention labs and biotech companies around the world, has been breathtaking. This month, the UK Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority granted a licence for scientists at the Francis Crick Institute in London to start using the technique to modify early-stage human embryos, although these wouldn't be allowed to grow past the stage of being a tiny ball of cells. Although it might seem like the CRISPR story has come out of nowhere in the past year, the Naked Genetics podcast was on the case back in 2012, when University of California Berkeley researcher Jennifer Doudna and her collaborator Emmanuel Charpentier, who was at Umea University in Sweden, published a paper in the journal Science entitled A Programmable Dual RNA-Guided DNA Endonuclease in Adaptive Bacterial Immunity. Here's a clip from the podcast back in July 2012 where science writer Nell Barry and I discussed the implications of their discovery. I love this just because of the, the potential of this story. And this is researchers who've been looking at bacteria and looking at how bacteria use certain molecules like molecular scissors to snip up their DNA and glue it together and helps them develop uh, different characteristics to help them survive. But they've actually looked at these, these molecular scissors and found out how they work, and they think that possibly you could use this technology to make programmable scissors, so you could cut up uh, human DNA, animal DNA, and basically glue it back together in any kind of way you like. That's pretty cool. I mean, I think it's kind of what I think of as genetic engineering. I guess you think, oh, you'll just put together whichever bit of the DNA that you want, but actually, in reality, that's not really possible yet. So I suppose this is taking us a little bit closer to real designer genetic tailoring or whatever you might like to call it so I remember when I I was in the lab and this was some time ago now so things may have changed but if you wanted to do genetic engineering and stick different bits of DNA together you had to look at the sequence and there were only certain sequences that you could cut using enzymes Um, things have probably moved on now but I think there is some restriction in the sequences that you can cut and glue together so having a different set of technology could could really be exciting. Yeah, and I guess the sort of eventual implications of that would be that you could create these kind of designer organisms like maybe bacteria that degrade nasty environmental toxins or produce things that we need for drugs or all kinds of exciting applications because we know that bacteria and fungi have all these abilities and it's just about could we harness them to do the things we want, I guess. Watch this space, I think, because it is still very early days for that. But uh, thank you very much. That's Nell Barry, science writer. Let's take a closer look at exactly what's involved in CRISPR, or to give it its full name, CRISPR-Cas9. To find out more about this molecular toolkit and what it can do, I went along to a meeting organised by the Progress Educational Trust, discussing new genetic techniques and the impact they could have on human health and human genomes in the future. I caught up with one of the speakers, Tony Perry from the University of Bath, who told me more about the story of CRISPR and some of its potential applications.
2: The prototype comes from bacteria that give you a sore throat, actually, a sore throat bacteria, Streptococcus pyogenes. And um, it seems to be a kind of defence system. I mean, it turns out that even bugs get bugs. And so these Streptococcus pyogenes, these sore throat bacteria, themselves get invaded by viruses. And the CRISPR-Cas9 was evolved as a way of cutting the viral DNA and thereby defending themselves, the strep pyogenes, um, against these uh, um, um, viral invaders. So what are the components of this this self-defence system? How does it work and how have
1: researchers then hacked this to do more precise editing?
2: The system really is like a pair of molecular scissors and a molecular sat-nav. The satnav is a small RNA molecule and it guides the uh, scissors, the molecular scissors, to precisely where you want uh, it to go in the genome. And the reason it does that is because, uh, like a sat-nav, it's programmable. So you, you get to uh, tell the satnav nav what the coordinates are in the genome, um, and it will then take the scissors to that point in the genome, and the scissors will cut there. And when they do so, when the scissors do so, they make a double-stranded break uh, called a DSB, and then the cell has got two types of toolkit that it can use to repair that double stranded break. And one type of repair that the cell can use, or one toolkit, is a simple kind of paste mechanism. Just and get
1: the ends and glue them back together absolutely again.
2: Absolutely, just get the ends, glue them back together again quickly. Because it, and it, is, it does have to be a rapid process because these breaks are, are anathema to cells. If they're not repaired quickly, the cell can die, and even worse, uh, it can give rise to uh, cancer and death of the organism in multicellular organisms. So, although it's very useful for research because you can use it to knock out genes if the cut is in a gene, it's not probably not going to be so useful for clinical applications anyway. And the second toolkit that the cell has, or mammalian cell has, to repair a double-stranded break, is called homology-directed uh, repair. Well, we can actually add in uh, another our own designer piece of DNA, which is used for repair. And so we can, we can design, yeah, design that, we can uh, produce it, fabricate it in vitro in the laboratory and make sure by sequencing that it's exactly what we want and then we can introduce it into the cell at the same time as we've introduced the molecular sat-nav and the, and the molecular scissors, the CRISPR-Cas9, Um, And so the cell, in the right circumstances, will use this extra piece of DNA that we've added as a repair template. And what you end up with um, is, in effect, this sequence that you've added precisely inserted in the targeted position in the genome so that uh, it's been used to, in other words, to repair the genome and you've introduced the change that corresponds to the the DNA that you've added in.
1: So we've got the, the CRISPR, which is the RNA, the guiding system. We've got the Cas9, the scissors, and then this DNA template, and that could be anything I can imagine
2: there can 't quite be anything you can imagine as yet, perhaps one day um, the constraint one one constraint at the moment is the size that you want to if you want to introduce a piece of DNA, so you, you know you, you make the cut where you want the cut to be, so you can introduce that a large piece of DNA where you want it to be, but there probably is an upper limit at the moment today on how much novel DNA you could introduce, um, and we 're probably in the many thousands of Base pairs or many thousands of characters in the genome and we don't know how you know whether the sky's the limit or not but what we do know is that as you increase the length of information that you want to introduce the efficiency drops and so probably if you wanted to introduce a really large piece of dna for whatever reason you might have to do that in multiple steps
1: so we've got this technology which seems like an incredibly powerful tool and I know that scientists all over the world are using it in all kinds of ways in research in the lab to understand how genes work and how genes get turned on and off and all this kind of thing. But what we're talking about at this meeting here is editing the human genome. Tell me about the two different approaches that, that people are trying to think about not doing necessarily at the moment, but the two sort of different ways that people are thinking about doing this at the moment.
2: So the, 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 as I see it, there, this whole topic can be um, sort of, perhaps rather artificially, but um, sorted into whether the changes that you make to the genome are heritable, or, in other words, they can be passed on in successive generations, or are not heritable. So the two main types of uh, non-heritable um, uh, genome editing changes that you might make and work together with existing technologies that are um, variously well established so
1: so this is effectively just normal cells of the body that are broken you 're repairing them in
2: some way. You can repair cells in situ um, uh, using uh, gene therapy, and this would be coupled together very nicely with. CRISPR-Cas9, but you here are doing the editing, as it were, of cells in the patient, of the patient cells in situ. And there are one or two clinical trials that are already, as I understand it, in progress to use this kind of in-situ approach of somatic cell gene therapy.
1: What sort of diseases are people starting to look at? Well,
2: the the ones that I am aware of are, for example, retinopathies. So you can go in and you can uh, edit... Uh, genes that predispose to certain types of retinopathy So that's
1: problems with eyesight that's at the back of the with, eye
2: Exactly, problems with eyesight and this is a, a, quite a good place to start because the eye is relatively accessible and a great deal is known about the eye and, uh, and so this is something which uh, lends itself to these Um, this application of CRISPR-Cas9. So this is an example, um, perhaps the first of many, but it's an example of somatic cell gene therapy um, combined with CRISPR-Cas9. So somatic cell gene therapy at the moment is, I mean, there are probably over 600 clinical trials Ongoing in the US, and it's a technology that's been around for some 25 years or more since the first successful somatic cell gene therapy. So we might see this with CRISPR Cas9, which is very new, being combined with very uh, well established uh, clinical uh, technologies. The other, the, the second non heritable type of application would be where you, which is, is a, a cell therapy, where you uh, take cells from a patient who is affected with a particular genetic condition that predisposes to a disease and you then edit those cells in vitro in the laboratory and then you can confirm that you've made the edit that you want to make and you can put those cells in effect you can put them then back into the patient because they now have um, you've you've now fixed as it were the the genetic uh, change that predisposed to their condition and that can happen either by taking cells and uh directly editing editing them and uh Putting them back in, and, and this, is, this is largely speculative, although there are one or two ongoing uh, pieces of work. The applications for that are, for example, where you can recover um, hematopoietic cells from the, the bone marrow of patients, um, and then you can potentially edit genes in, this, in these um, um, blood stem cells, and then transplant this bone marrow back into the patient. Um, so that now the patient's bone marrow cells have got the repaired version of uh, the, the cells have got the repaired version of the gene, um, and the problem is fixed. Another another way, perhaps a little bit more f- uh, futuristic, is where but but is conceivable is combining CRISPR-Cas9 with the whole technology of induced pluripotent stem cells. So induced pluripotent stem cells were. Um, was something that was uh, uh, discovered by a a method that was reported by Shinya Yamanaka. He won the Nobel Prize in 2012 for this. And basically what you can do is you can take somatic cells like skin cells and you can, if you do the right uh, treatment, uh, uh, if you subject them to the right factors... Uh, you can cause them to start behaving like embryo-like cells. And from those embryo-like cells, you can ask them to then uh, specialise, re-specialise, if you like, into whatever cell you you, you ask them to specialise into. So now we have a system, if we combine this iPS cell technology, where we could, um, if we have a patient, perhaps a patient with a, uh, a, a neurological disease that has a genetic predisposition, we could take skin cells from that patient because although skin is not the brain, clearly, those cells in many cases would also carry the same mutation. It's just that they're not there's no manifestation of the mutation there because they're not <laughs> neurons. But we can take skin cells, generate from them iPS cells, embryo-like cells. We can go in with CRISPR-Cas9, so combining the CRISPR-Cas9 here, fix the problem, and then ask these embryo-like cells, these iPS cells, to differentiate to become neurons which we can do in many cases in many different cell types and then we can transplant the neurons which are derived in effect it's all a bit roundabout but they are derived from the patient back into the patient but now those neurons have got the fixed uh, fixed uh, genome so that's an example another example of non-heritable because the, the neuron is is not the germline so that's a, another example of how crispr cas9 might be used In uh, non-heritable therapy. And this is this IPS, not not CRISPR-Cas9, but IPS, this kind of IPS approach is being used and has been used in clinical trials, for example, in Japan.
1: Tony Perry from the University of Bath. And we'll be hearing more from him in next month's podcast when we take a look at whether CRISPR could be used to genetically engineer humans. And getting to the heart of the burning questions, I ask whether my friend could hack her genome to grow a tail. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Kat Arney. Still to come, our gene of the month is black and white, and very cuddly. But first, back in December, the US National Academies of Sciences and Medicines, the Royal Society in London, and the Chinese Academy of Sciences convened a major summit in Washington to discuss the use and implications of using CRISPR for modifying human cells and embryos. The technology to do this is either in place or in progress, but just because we can doesn't mean that we should. Professor Azim Sarani from the Gurdon Institute in Cambridge went along, and I spoke to him during a break at the Progress Educational Trust Conference, where he'd been presenting his work on creating egg and sperm cells from somatic cells in the body, such as skin, to find out who went to the Washington summit and what happened there.
3: Well, there were scientists and there were ethicists, there were lawyers. So it was a mixed group of people. So the scientists were putting their information on, you know, how far the technique has got and what uh, what new developments might come.
1: And presumably what we don't know as well and what some of the risks are.
3: The, there are risks, uh, for example, although most of the work suggests that, you know, there are, you don't have problems, particular problems with off-target effects.
1: This is the, accidentally cutting accidentally things you don't want to cutting, cut, yeah. yeah.
3: I think overall uh, it looks like the incidence of off-target effects is far less than was anticipated so, so that's one good thing
1: In terms of the technology um, we now know that there are researchers who are working on how to take cells from the body somatic cells like skin cells and then treat them in certain ways and even potentially turn these into egg and sperm I mean that's a, a whole world not needing to take mm-hmm. an egg and a sperm from a, a man and a woman mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. edit them but actually you could just take someone's skin cells and make a baby and change those genes
3: because, you know, these are children that are not born yet, so you, you can't talk about informed consent, you know.
1: It's the kind of the plain God yeah, argument. So, so, yeah, yeah.
3: And, and then other people say, yeah, well, when you have children, naturally, you don't ask their permission, you know. You're just passing on your genes. I didn't good want and, to be born. Good and, good, and, <laughs> good and bad, you know. You don't go and say, you know, I didn't get permission from the children I gave birth to or something like that, you know. So it's... it's, it's but those, those, those are things that, that did come up. At, uh, at the meeting, you know, the, and um, I think that the thing that was surprising to me was that um, I went there thinking that there'd be a lot of people who would be saying, you know, gene editing, germline gene edi- editing is a red line, you know, you just you don't cross this. And I found that overall people were much more prepared to debate this and they didn't they didn't say you know we should never do it so the consensus at the end was that we should review this periodically so they want to see how the science is progressing what the public views are whether the public opinion is shifting like it did to some of the other things so i think you know um That's a good thing because I think, you know, um, we have to see. So I think at the moment the the decision is that, you know, people just press on with doing basic research. So if you have, for example, a very good reason why you want to use uh, CRISPR-Cas9 on human embryos, for example, not to implant but to understand how genes work, how cells are made and so on, then I think the general consensus is that this should be allowed. I think this could also be the case for cells that give rise to germ cells that uh, I mean at you know I've already used it in the synthetic germ cells we have made you know to understand how genes are working
1: but how important is it that this isn't just a decision that the scientists make you know say okay, we understand the science we should be the ones who d- decide how this works
3: I, I think that absolutely not I don't think the scientists are, are forcing this issue that you know they I think my reading of the situation is that scientists are excited about the work they're doing because I think this is a very powerful tool. And so most of the basic researchers see this as an opportunity to gain knowledge. So that's, that's exciting enough for them. They're not necessarily interested in pushing any kind of force this onto the public and say, you know, now we're going to decide because we can do it, we will do it. I think the, the overall, the tone of this meeting was that we will present the science and we want to inform the public and then it has to be a decision for the public through the regulatory um, committees and agencies that differ in different countries so it's not going to be uniform. That, that was very clear that you know it's not it may be that the regulatory framework is not going to be you know the same everywhere because there are different conditions and things like that so it will very much be dependent on you know each country kind of taking this on and but doing it through this interaction international interaction so that you know there's a debate internationally as well
1: and to return to the, some of the more exciting technology down the road, I, people are now starting to talk about making egg and sperm cells from cells in the body, potentially engineering those. How do you see that kind of technology unfolding? Is this, is this going to be the future of this kind of technology?
3: I think we are, to be honest, we are far from that. I think really uh, we've just taken the first steps. I mean, we've just literally made make, we are being able to make the very early jump cells. Also, much more complicated issue is whether they're going through proper programming. You'd have to see whether they're going through all of those kinds of changes properly in culture.
1: That was Professor Azim Sarani from the Gurdon Institute in Cambridge. With all this talk of engineering the genome, it's important to remember that we really don't understand much at all about how our genes work and what they do. Every year, scientists find hundreds, if not thousands, of associations between tiny variations in our DNA and the risk of all kinds of diseases and disorders, from cancer and heart disease to diabetes and depression, through genome-wide association studies, usually known as GWAS. Unpicking exactly how these genetic variants work is a complex task and a new paper from Susie Gage and her colleagues at Bristol University has just thrown some more complexity into the mix. The impact of genes on lifestyle factors. I asked her to explain what she's found.
0: The sort of rationale behind this paper is just trying to get a better handle on what the results of genome-wide association studies actually mean what they can actually tell us because it's all well and good knowing that certain genetic variants are associated with a disease or with a, um, a phenotype of any kind but until you actually can sort of delve a bit deeper and work out what that association actually means that's that's sort of only of limited interest, really. So we
1: hear these stories in the papers, you know, 10 new genes for cancer found, you know, 100 new genes for autism. Is is that this kind of study that's throwing up these genes? and, And we don't really know what they are and
0: what they do? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, in some cases, you do know what a particular genetic variant does in terms of coding for a protein or something like that where you can actually test it but more often than not actually we don't know at the moment and so that's sort of the question is well how do we know what these variants are actually doing are, is it some sort of biological effect that they're having on the disorder on cancer for example or is it actually, that they are having an effect on something else and that something else might be having the effect on cancer. So unpack that a bit. What do you mean by
1: that? What sort of examples would would apply here?
0: The reason that we became interested in this is that we noticed that this genetic variant that is quite robustly associated with how heavy a smoker you are, if you're a smoker this genetic variant was actually seen in a genome wide association study of lung cancer so that could mean that there's just some sort of shared genetic architecture so this gene might have an effect on both smoking and your risk of lung cancer but what seems far more parsimonious explanation of this is actually that the reason that this genotype or this genetic variant is is coming out of the lung cancer GWAS is because smoking causes lung cancer. So genetic variants that predict smoking are going to be seen in GWASs of lung cancer.
1: Basically, if someone has this genetic variation, and they are a smoker, they're going to want to smoke loads. And that's exactly. what's going to be more likely to give them lung cancer. And that increases their risk of lung cancer. Absolutely, yes.
0: So are there any other genetic variations that, that might be working in a similar way? Quite possibly, yes. At the moment, the sort of main thing holding us back is actually we don't know the, the specific genotypes that are associated with these kind of modifiable exposures. There's a good example in the alcohol literature. There's a genetic variant that quite strongly predicts alcohol consumption. And it's not very common in European populations, but a bit more common in um, samples of East Asian ancestry. If you look in these populations, then genome-wide association studies of high blood pressure identify this particular alcohol-related genotype. But it's not seen in GWASs of high blood pressure in European populations, which is pretty strong or certainly fairly strong evidence that um, it might be alcohol causing high blood pressure and that's why you only see this particular genotype in these GWASs in these specific populations.
1: And so do you think that there might be other ones out there? We've done cigarettes
0: and alcohol. Any other vices that might be linked to, uh, to conditions? Well absolutely and quite a lot of substance use is known to be heritable. So for example cannabis use but as yet we haven't identified the specific genetic variants that are associated with cannabis use. But as and when these variants are identified, it would be perfectly plausible that we might see these genetic variants coming out of GWASs for diseases if there is a... So if there is a causal link between cannabis and schizophrenia, and we identify these cannabis um, sort of risk-increasing genetic variants, then if there's truly a causal association between cannabis and schizophrenia, you might well expect that these genetic variants would come out in GWASs of schizophrenia. So what do we do
1: with this information? I always find it interesting with these genetic studies, whether you sort of say, oh, well, you've got the gene variation that makes you more likely to be a stoner. Well, what do we do? Or, you know, you're going to smoke more, so bad luck. Where do we take this work?
0: So in terms of what these studies might actually tell us, when we're looking at um, genome-wide association studies of diseases, if a genetic variant comes out of one of these studies that's actually telling us that there's a modifiable risk factor that's increasing the risk of this disease, then that's a much easier place to target an intervention at than a biological mechanism.
1: So it's easier to help someone stop smoking, say, than it is to find and develop a drug that targets a molecular pathway that might reduce their lung cancer risk.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, yeah.
1: But don't we already know that people should give up smoking
0: (laughs) well i mean that is a very good point i think being able to sort of say a bit more definitively that what we're seeing are causal associations here can only help in terms of getting that message across there's also
1: a lot of talk about the nature versus nurture or nature with nurture and i guess what you're unpicking here is how our genes interact with the things that we do the things in our lifestyle It feels like this is really first steps into that world that we still don't really understand much about how our lifestyle and our environment affects our genes and and what happens to us.
0: Yeah, I think that's the key point here, that we have to be very cautious when we kind of interpret these these studies because we're really just at the very beginning of being able to understand what these genetic associations might actually mean and how we can then harness them to improve people's health and, and improve our own understanding of humans, our behaviour and our health.
1: Bristol University's Susie Gage and her paper was published this week in the journal PLOS Genetics. And finally, it's time for our gene of the month, and this time it's the cute and cuddly panda. Rather than being a gene in these famous black and white bears, panda is found in sea urchins, and it's short for Paracentrotus antinodal dorsal activity. It encodes a molecule that's important for helping a developing sea urchin embryo tell its front side from its back, known as dorsoventral patterning, and is laid down in the sea urchin egg before it's even fertilised panda works by acting against another important developmental molecule called nodal which tells cells in the developing urchin to become ventral the front bit rather than dorsal that's the back that's all for now next month i'll be continuing with a look at CRISPR, finding out if we can use the technology to genetically modify humans and discovering how researchers are using it to figure out how genes work in sickness and in health if you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at You can also get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page or by tweeting at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is on iTunes and online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next time for another peek inside your genes.